in our house, my wife and I have one of those squabbles about what to call a certain room. Uh, she grew up having a living room and a den. Uh, I did not have a living room and a den, I just had a living room. And uh, so consequently, I call the den the living room uh, continually, and uh, she's saying, no, that's the den. I've, I've pretty well given up on that after uh, five years. Uh, I call it the den nowadays. But the idea, and, and what I've learned is when I visited their home, uh, and I remember my, my great aunt had the same situation, you had this, the den, you know, that's where you, you hung out, that's where you lived, that's uh, where the fireplace was, that's where the TV was, that's where you uh, have your couch, uh, that's where you live, thus I think you should call it the living room. But nonetheless, uh, there was another room that was called the living room that no one lived in. Uh, it was the room that was nice, you know, all the, the really nice furniture was there, the really white carpet was there, the ornate little knickknacks uh, that, you know, spoke some value were there, and, uh, and if you caught it at the right time, there might be plastic on that couch, <laughs> um, but you know, that was the room you would go in if you were really a special guest. And uh, you got to sit in this room. Um, rare did ever sit in one of these rooms. Um, and I often wonder, what, what is the point of this? You know, and, and often there's usually just one little wall. You can just tear down the wall and have a really nice room uh, all together. But no, that just doesn't work. So nonetheless, we have a den. We don't have a living room. And I'm pretty happy with that, I guess. Uh, but you know, I want to talk to you today about the, the living room, if you will, of the tabernacle. Okay? There was a, a special room. In the old way of worship in the Old Testament, that was kind of like that living room that was where only once a year someone would come and be a part, okay? And I want to talk about that and share what the meaning of that is today, because obviously we don't have living rooms in our worship times anymore. Uh, I've shared with you from last week in Hebrews chapter 8, we learned that the Christian faith is a deeply spiritual thing, and that now, because of what Christ has done, there is no such thing as a tabernacle anymore. This isn't the church. There's no church uh, building, so to speak. It, it, is, it is a building that the church uses. Uh, but there's nothing sacred about this building. There are no longer church clothes. All right? And I know you think, well, what do you call this? You know, this is a church clothes. All right, yeah, okay, that's what you call church clothes, but if you want to talk about what the Bible says, uh, worship clothes were priestly garments, okay? And so from that point on, if you want to say church clothes, you just need to understand it's coming from a cultural perspective, not a biblical perspective. And consequently, we learned last time how, you know, this whole idea of worship is, uh, is lifestyle, and fact, what we commonly call worship never is called worship in the Bible, you know what worship is, is what you're doing right now, hopefully, maybe. Uh, and we equate worshiping with sitting and listening and, and singing and dressing up and maybe giving money. And the Bible just never really ever refers to that as worship, but instead, instead says whether you eat or drink, all that you do, do to the glory of God, that is worship. It is, the, it is how you live your life. All right? And so uh, that's a radical change for the Jew. Maybe radical change for us. Uh, but there is a place for a building. Okay? 
And it's not necessarily this building, but he goes back to it in Hebrews chapter 9 and says, look, there was a special building that was, in every sense of the word, a worship building. And he refers to the tabernacle, and he says, and this was built by design, built by God, and planned by God, rather, and it was done to be a shadow of heavenly things. There's something to be learned in uh, the placement and all the details of this building. And so he's going to go back to this a little bit and uh, talk about it in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to talk about it as well, and not as much detail as we could. I'll save that for Wednesday evenings as we continue our study in Exodus uh, when we get to that point to do that. But uh, we're going to do chapter 9 and look at this together and see especially how God deals with guilt. And uh, we're going to look through verses 1 through 14. I originally had hoped to plan the entire chapter, but as I studied, I realized that would not be. And so let's just do verses 1 through 14. And so, in honor of this passage, let's stand together as we read this. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a section, second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their annual their ritual duties. <clears throat> but in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which is offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed upon until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You may be seated. Now, I'm hoping I didn't lose you in all these details of tables and chairs. Uh, or no, not chairs, but lampstands. Uh, there is a purpose behind this. If you remember the context, chapter 8, we were just reading the first, right before chapter 1. He is saying that he, the author, is in a time of transition where the old is being done away with and the new is coming. The old covenant is, is about to be passed away. Even the temple that may have presently been standing when he wrote this within just a few years, will be wiped away by the Roman uh, destruction. 
He says, but it's okay because there's something better in its place. It is the new covenant in Jesus Christ, all right? And so that's what we spent last week looking at. And so he goes and says, but you know, look, there are regulations for worship. There are earthly places of holiness. Let me talk about this building. And so he goes in detail. And so I just want to kind of help you have some visual of what this was. It was a tent. The tabernacle uh, meant tent uh, to dwell with God uh, was prepared. He's referring back to the Exodus uh, uh, tent, and so there were uh, an outer court to it, and a holy place, and a most holy place. So if you will can imagine, three places uh, subdivided within itself, the innermost being the most holy place, outside being the holy place, and then beyond that was the outer court, okay? Now the common Jew uh, would only get as far as the outer court. They would see the, the, the altar that's there, uh, they would see the a laver that was there, but they would never go into the tent itself, the holy place. This is something only priests did, okay? But then the inner room, as the author brings out, only the high priest would do once a year. And so if you can just imagine, we're going to look at the holy place here, if we can put that picture up. We're going to see what this might have looked like, a, a replica of, uh, of what this might have looked like. Well, you can't see it too, very, too good there, unless we have some lights cut off. Um, but if you could have great vision and see this, uh, what it would look like is gold-paneled walls, okay? Gold-paneled walls, and uh, above it would be uh, the tent work, so you could not have any light uh, uh, coming in from the sun, and it's still not too great. We, if we can cut this one right here off, Matt, that would be a great help. And then um, there were three pieces of furniture that were within it. If you could see on your left... In the midst of all this gold is a, uh, a menorah, okay? And this is the golden lampstand, and it was to be continually lit. And so you could kind of imagine that with all these gold paneling walls, it was to reflect the light that came from this menorah. It was to always be lit. One of the jobs of the priest was to go in and to make sure the lamp was burning, that it had oil. This is uh, a commandment of the Lord that was to always happen. That's why uh, Hanukkah is what it is. Uh, they were to make sure that this lamp was to be continued lit, though they didn't have the oil supply, and it lasted for eight days. And that's why it's a, a holiday that it's fl- uh, flows from that. And then on the right-hand side, if you could see, would be the table of showbread, okay? This was the bread that was to be placed in this holy place. It was to be replaced on every Sabbath, all right? And so one of the jobs of the priest was a, a baking aspect, and uh, they would eat the, sab- uh, eat the bread, but replace it every Sabbath day. Now, uh, what you were to look at was a great veil, a great veil uh, that you could kind of see as you look at this that uh, had uh, scarlet and blue and purple uh, twine twisted together and embroidered upon it were cherubim, okay? These were the uh, special class of angels that you see in the Garden of Eden to protect the Garden of Eden from sinful man. It is a symbol of these angels that protect the holiness of God. And so that's what you would see. Now, if somehow, some way, we could get beyond that veil, uh, we might see the most holy place. And, and Michael, if you could show that, and hopefully we might see a little glimpse of what this... Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> a little blurred aspect. Uh, what you've got here is the veil. And if you got good vision, you can see a shadow of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? The Ark of the Covenant was the one piece of furniture that was to be 
in the most holy place, all right? And uh, if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you had a pretty good picture of what this might have looked like, all right? It was a, an acacia wood box overlaid with gold, and the lid of which was pure gold, and on that lid were uh, cherubims with their, with their wings spread out over the ark, okay? Um, and so inside this Ark of the Covenant, as the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, verse 4, was a golden ur holding manna. This represents God's provision, that in God they will be provided for as he did with the people of, in Exodus. You would have Aaron's staff that budded. God used this to demonstrate his power and authority through Moses and Aaron when there was rebellion. It was a, it was a sign not to murmur, not to complain against God. Uh, and then also you have the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments that were done by Moses, uh, given by God, and were uh, left into the Ark of the Covenant, representing the law of God, the judgment of God on man. All right. Now, this is a unique sight. If you could only see it, you know, uh, let me just encourage you. You've seen more than the Jews would have seen. All right. Uh, they couldn't have seen this. Uh, and so, right before this was the altar of incense which was to continually go up an aroma of frankincense. It was a symbol of prayer. We'll talk about it sometime on Wednesday nights. Uh, this is where Zechariah was when he got the vision from the, of the angel concerning his son, future son, John the Baptist. Uh, and so this is, gives you an idea of what the scenery might have looked like. Uh, now, what you need to know as you study the tabernacle and for the purposes of the Hebrew author is he's not going into all the details of the gold and materials and things that really are fascinating to me uh, and interesting to, to learn. But he's bringing out a point here. And notice he says in verse 5, he says, you know, all these, the cherubim of glory overshadow the mercy seat. All these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, there's a lot more to be said but there's a purpose I want you to get in this. And, and here's what I believe the purpose is. As you study the tabernacle, you will come across gate after veil, after veil, after wall, after wall. The Old Testament is a picture of why you can't be in the presence of God. And every time you see the presence of God, you often have the restrictions on why mankind cannot be in pro close proximity to God's presence. You remember in the story when God was on Mount Sinai, he gave clear instructions. He says, the people are not to go anywhere close to this mountain. If they touch it, they will die. And so you can imagine uh, the caution tape out there. You know, Don't go near. The holiness of God is here. You could die. And so you see that time after time in the Old Testament is the barrier between you and God, between mankind and God. That seems to be the point in verse 5. Now, uh, so verses 1 through 5 is about the tabernacle furniture. Now, if we could look at verses 6, you see 6 through 10 is about the functions, the tabernacle functions. And he goes in and describes in detail uh, what the priests were doing and what they were not doing. First, the, the first section, the holy place, was ritual duties. They were to refuel the lamps. They were to bring out the Sabbath bread. You see this in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20 through 21, Leviticus chapter 24, talks about this but verse 7 he says the second place one time a year in other words this is a unique moment this is the living room if you will where only one time a year a high priest would go and when they went we and we find details about this in leviticus chapter 16 when they went they always had blood they could not go in unless they had the blood of a bull first to cover their own sins 
to cover their own sins. And then they had to go in again with the blood of a goat for the sins of the people. Okay? Now, if they were to go in to see that site without the blood, it was sure death. It was sure death. That mercy seat had to be sprinkled. That lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant had to be sprinkled with blood because if they looked in it, it would have brought judgment and instant death to them. But because of the blood of that goat, the blood of the bull, it covered their sins ceremonially, okay? Uh, And so he's bringing this out, and you get the idea that this was a very rare thing indeed to be able to go into the holy presence of God. All these barriers. But notice, catch something in verse 7. The priest does this, offers them for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. If you were to study in the Old Testament, you would find no sacrifice for what's called presumptuous or willful sins. What is a presumptuous, willful sin? Is when you know something is a sin, and you do it anyway. Oh my goodness, I thought that was a sin. You know, that's what I do. There was no sacrifice for sins like that. But it was the sins of ignorance that you were not aware that there was an atonement for, a a blood for. This is partly or the main reason why David wrote what he did in Psalm 51. Psalm 51, let me read this to you. David had been discovered in his immorality, his adultery, his murder, and his cover-up. And God, through Nathan, exposed him for who he was. And so now he is coming to God with it. And notice verse 16 of, of Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Why? Because there was no instruction, prescription for a sacrifice for the type of sin that David did. And he knew that. Verse 17, so what do you do? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So you get the idea here of the function that was going on. This continual working. Verse 8, he says the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. As you can see, there was no door. There was just veils. There was just barriers after barriers. And as long as this first section is still standing, as long as this old covenant is still being practiced, then what you've got are barriers between you and God. We go on, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices of offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, that word worshiper... It's the same word that you find at the end of verse 14 when it says uh, in this, this part that we are purified, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It should be to worship the living God. There's a parallel that's going on between verses 14 and verse 9 uh, that we are worshipers or servers and our conscience are messed up. And so we could, we could, we could kill our favorite lamb. You, you imagine how traumatic that would be? You know, the, the perfect, unblemished lamb. I mean, we're not talking an old sheep. You know, a lamb. You know, they're cute. You give them milk and they're, you know, they come following you. Imagine explaining to your child why you've got to kill this animal and shed the blood. I mean, that's a traumatic emotional experience. But it's to teach the preciousness of God's holiness that there is a price to be paid 
for their sin. But even still, though you do that, you still are guilty and feel the guilt in your heart. These only deal in verse 10 with the outward, the regulations, until the time of the Reformation. All right? That's the time we're in today. That's the time the author is in now. We are in the times of Reformation where the old is being passed away and now is the new. And so verses 11 through 14, he explains what is the new, which is, by the way, the tabernacle fulfillment. The tabernacle fulfillment. All right? Now, let me talk about guilt. Um... You remember the first time you felt guilt? It's kind of hard to think back the first time you felt guilt. It, it, it happened fairly early, didn't it? I remember one time I, I had a BB gun. You know, and boys with BB guns were a bad thing, especially when they have spare, you know, spare time. Anything that moves, you know, fair game. Bumblebees, you know, butterflies, cute little things. I mean, that's just kind of how boys are. And so I'm, in, I'm rampant shooting BBs everywhere. And, uh, you know, as the, as the mom and dad will tell you, better watch out for the ricochet. Bam, ricochet hits the basement window and there's a big crack all over the window. How do you hide that? I tried to figure out, how do I hide that this window is, is cracked? Of course, my mom saw it. I thought, it's, it's bad. And she said, wait till your dad gets home. <laughs> Don't you hate that? I had no fun the rest of the day. I just had this sinking feeling. And I couldn't get rid of it. And you know, I'd try to have fun, but I couldn't. It was on my mind. It was heavy. And when dad came home, did you think I went running to him? If I did, it was only to cover up what was, uh, what I did. But there was no rejoicing at dad's car rolling in. I was thinking maybe he'd be delayed. You know, maybe mom would forget about it. And I could think of all these reasons because I did not want to face it. All right. Now that's just a simple thing. But you remember how it was as a child? Maybe I don't have to bring that reminder to you. Maybe you're dealing with it right now. And you're sitting here thinking, who am I sitting here all dressed up like I'm a good person? Who am I trying to sing songs? God knows good and well what I've been doing and what I've been thinking. Who am I fooling? I don't deserve to be here. I'm just passing on a charade and I'm hating myself more for it. I can't enjoy the things of life anymore because this is on my mind. And perhaps maybe you're coming here because you think maybe... It'll make up for it. Maybe if I go to church, maybe it'll make up for who I am. Maybe if I sing in the choir. You know, not everyone does that. Or maybe if I give money to Haiti. I was thinking about reading the, the, in the paper about Jonathan Edward, uh, John Edwards. You know, former senator. And uh, all the things that he was confessing up to do and how his solution is to go to Haiti and just bury himself in the work. That he's been in other countries, burying himself in the work. And I, and I can imagine that. I can think of that. You're hoping you can leave 
it behind, that you can be like a bird and fly away and pretend like it never happened if you could, but somehow it stays with you and every little child that you help, and you're thinking, maybe if I help this child, then, then somehow it will absolve me of the bad that I've done. Guilt is this tricky thing. It stays with you. What do we do with guilt the author was saying, even if you had a tabernacle, even if you slaughtered your beloved lamb, even if you killed goat, even if you have blood everywhere, and you paid all this money, it would not have taken care of it. Jesus understood this. Matthew 23, verse 25 to 28, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you are outwardly to appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Matthew 7, verse 14 through 23. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defy him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house, left the people, his disciples asked him about this. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of men, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What if somehow, some way, what was within our heart was displayed on the outside? That would have messed up the Pharisees. Probably would have messed us up. Listing out these things that Jesus brings out that comes from the heart, verse 21 of Matthew 7. What if with envy your skin turned green? What if with pride there was an ugliness that came upon your uh, clothing? What if with deceit your tongue turned black? What if with sexual immorality your eyes darkened? What if it was so evident on the outside? It might free us up. No longer living under categories of who I am in private and who I am in public. But chances are none of us would be here. <laughs> I'm not showing my face. Envy is written all over it. I've got too much greed. I'm ashamed. I can't go out. And so like Adam and Eve, we've learned that when it comes time to be presented and God's walking in the garden, we put our fig leaves on because of our shame. Like, well, maybe no one will know. And I don't know what's in your heart, but God does. 
God does. And like Adam and Eve, we still cry out and we no longer look for the presence of our Father coming to us, but we look for ways to avoid it. This was the Old Testament. We were glad for the barriers. We were glad for the veils. We were glad for the walls. And we were glad for the caution tape around Mount Sinai because it was for our own good. We did not want to go before God. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. In other words, not something on earth, but the eternal, the real, the heavenly presence of God. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He said, Bell, you cannot stop me. I will come into the most holy place. And if you have obstacle, look at the blood that is coming from my hands, from my feet, from my side. These are not the things of goats or are of cows. This is the precious blood of the eternal Son of God that is pouring out on me. Let there be eternal redemption. Let me buy back for eternity these whom I love. I love. Verse 13, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of heifer sanctifies for the purification of flesh. In other words, if it had some merit outwardly, how much more does the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from our dead works to serve the living God. Here is the gospel Here is the good news that though you come and you sit here and you're ashamed of yourself and you're thinking, I can sit here as long as someone doesn't know really what I think. As long as it happens, here you are and here I am. And I'm thinking, I can preach to you as long as you don't know what I think. I come before God and he says, I know your conscience. I know your guilt. I know what you deal with. You don't need to go and serve in Haiti to try to redeem yourself because it won't work. Your guilt will remain. So he comes to the heavenly place and he sprinkles his blood on our conscience. On our conscience. And God declares us righteous. You know what I have learned that I have to have faith in? When I have sin in my life and God brings it to my attention and I am deeply ashamed. God, how is it this happened? This is who I am, but yet you say I'm this. And how does this happen, God? And I won't. I want to confess my sins. And I want to say to God, God, is there something I can do? Is there something I can do? Maybe I'll memorize more verses. Maybe I'll really help someone else here that I, you know, really sacrifice it. There's a part of me that wants to do that because it says, and I'm saying to myself, there's, there's no way it can be this easy. There's no way I can say, just trust God. And he forgives me of my sin. He forgives me of my bitterness, my, uh, my unforgiveness. He forgives me of my hatred, my greed, my lust, my selfishness, my pride. He forgives me of these things. I say, God, how can that be? That seems too easy. No, it's not easy. It's just I don't grasp what Jesus did when he died on the cross. I don't grasp the holiness. I don't grasp the sacrifice involved in it. But what I do is say, God, though there's a part of me that wants to do this, if I do that, if I try to redeem myself, I shame you. I belittle you. 
I belittle your holiness and I exalt myself. Because I think that only if I do some good things will I feel good. What does it say? That my conscience is rested on what I do. And what scripture and the gospel is teaching is this. Your conscience doesn't rest on how you redeem yourself. Your conscience rests on how Jesus redeems you. This is faith. This is the gospel. And so you can sit here, and you and I both know that you on the inside don't look nearly as good as you look on the outside. You know that, I know that, and I know that you know that, and you know that I know that. I mean, okay, you got that? None of us want to display who we are on the inside. Look around, we're all in the same. The gospel is this. It makes no difference. Jesus died for our sins and sprinkled our conscience with his blood. Thus, we are clean. So there's verse 14. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve, to worship the living God. Which means now I spend my day not in self pity of all of I am and who I am in the past, that though pride continues with me, I say, you know what? I'm not going to deal with that anymore. I'm not going to anguish over my past mistakes. I now know that God's forgiven me. Let me love Him and let me love someone else. And guess what I'm doing when I do that? I'm serving, I'm worshiping the living God. The reason Jesus died on the cross is that I would not spend my day Wondering whether or not I'm pure, whether or not my conscience is clean. He took care of that. Jesus died on the cross so that I would spend my day worshiping him. That I would work, eat, sleep, play, care for others well, lovingly, holy toward God. That my adverbs change. My verbs may not unless those verbs involve sin. But my adverbs change because now I want to eat, I want to clean, I want to work, I want to write, I want to send emails, I want to drive, I want to talk to people, I want to pray for others, I want to do these things in ways that glorify God. And I've been freed up, I've been redeemed for that purpose. So let me ask you, how many of you have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ spiritually and your conscience is clean? Not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. Did you know that though you walked in with a guilty conscience, you can walk out with a clean conscience? How much would you pay? What you would gladly pay, Jesus paid for you. He asked you to trust him because that defeats your pride and exalts him when you trust him. Will you do that? Let's pray.